Episode 44, The Golden Rule, and Who is Responsible for Filling Up the Emotional Void You Naturally Have Inside. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, I'm back. It's been forever since my last episode. I believe that was in April of this year, 2022, and here it is November. It's been a very uh, eventful year and uh, lots of uh, distractions from the podcast. Uh, however, I do think I see a way clear to keep going in the near future and to have um, uh, even possibly weekly episodes posted from here on out for some time. Um, so there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, one for the long delay is that we did shut down the uh, great room, the uh, classroom uh, school that I had. Uh, there was just not sufficient support for it in this small uh, market. So it could not ever thrive, although it seemed to be successful, but could never thrive. And so with a rough financial summer, we didn't see the point in taking the risk to try to keep it going. Uh, so we shut that down. That's very sad. It also opens up new opportunities to uh, learn new things, to sort of do some postmortem on that, um, and to reprioritize. Uh, as you know, if you've been listening for a while, uh, priorities are very difficult for me. The question, what should Jack be doing, is looming ever large uh, all the time. And um, this podcast is one thing that has suffered because of the Great Room uh, project. Uh, and then so is some of my other personal study, and yet they're all important. And I have uh, found that uh, being involved with people one-on-one -on -one, uh, in the classroom setting is uh, super important to me and uh, very fulfilling, very edifying. Uh, also very frustrating sometimes, very difficult in dealing with people, uh, just like uh, some people have a very hard time dealing with me and whatever my quirks uh, may be, and um, so life is hard. <laughs> However, I am glad to be back uh, in front of the microphone, and I have uh, done a lot of thinking. I've done a lot of rethinking and um, hopefully continue going toward growth and understanding things rightly. That is the way that God understands them. So, uh, in fact, it is funny to me. It seems ironic. It seems out of place that any human would um, venture to get behind a mic and try to tell other people uh, what is right about the Bible, uh, what's wrong about Bible interpretation, all this sort of thing, because we are in best-guess mode. Uh, our interpretation of the texts is such a product of the state of our own characters, of our own knowledge and understanding, and we get so much wrong. So to me, it seems kind of funny, kind of stupid in a way. Oh, look! a guy talking about the Bible. <laughs> uh, however, we are who we are. We, that's all we have. We cannot go be somebody else 
to think through these things, and I have uh, become to think. Um, I've come to think very adamantly that this whole process of wrestling with it all and trying to make sense of it all was actually part of God's plan for us. I think we should be constantly reading and discussing and weighing things out and trying to understand this passage uh, alongside that one and how they all fit together or not. Maybe they don't fit together in some way that we think they should. You know, the whole thing can be quite a puzzle. So anyway, here I sit uh, with lots to say, and I do plan to turn a corner here shortly. Uh, I've been writing a bit throughout the summer and fall and um, certainly have some things to share. But I have in mind uh, something that's been on my mind for quite some time, and that is what are the most basic building blocks of our Christian beliefs? And uh, I think I want to start a series on that, maybe uh, quite a long-term thing. But uh, getting very simple and being sure that we've got things on straight, even in the things we consider simple, like, uh, okay, God is the creator of us, and God is the judge of us, and as as judge, God is both uh, kind, thank God, and he is stern, And those two don't seem to go together in a lot of people's minds. And yet, in God's mind, they totally go together. And so, right off the bat, we find that he is sort of a higher being than we tend to be. And, oh boy, we have to stretch our brains to understand that. Or not. (laughs) We can just say, I don't understand that. Whatever. Let's just go on as if he is only kind because I'm such a kind person. Or he's only stern because I'm such a stern person. Right. And so, um, you know, that I think we're supposed to struggle with these things if we want to be intellectually honest and that our lives should be filled, uh, ideally, with uh, lots of good friendships where uh, fellowships where we are constantly discussing, weighing, thinking and improving our point of view. So um, Anyway, today I wanted to talk about something that I think is very important, and uh, it's actually like three or four lessons all in one. Um, As usual, I have no idea how long this is going to take, and I don't care very much about that fact. So I will uh, split it in half if I need to. Uh, Maybe there will come other parts to this later. This is all kind of woven together, if you haven't noticed Uh, All of these things that we talk about seem to be woven into quite a tapestry of understanding. And uh, who knows how much of it I have yet got wrong and we'll be improving as we go. Anyway, today's episode uh, number 44, The Golden Rule and Who is Responsible for Filling Up the Emotional Void You Naturally Have Inside. So, um... This does start out by talking, I'm I'm reading from a script here today, uh, barring whatever interjections I make. Uh, This does start out by talking about the psychology of us and our emotional lives and such, but it definitely gets into the Bible and the golden rule. And let me state just right up front what that is. It's the statement of Jesus and many others actually throughout history that says something along the lines of... uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Sometimes it's stated positively like that. Sometimes it's in the negative. Uh, Do not do to others what you would not have them do to you. This sort of thing. But the principle is obviously quite close. Although some people want to uh, really harp on, on the difference. Oh no, Jesus said in the positive and that's like really, really important. Well, okay. But I think he also said some things in the negative too. So I'm not sure how great a point that is. Uh, And I should note that many philosophers throughout Earth history have said such things. I believe, uh, if memory serves, over 50 are on record. People like Confucius had very similar things to say. And, of course, the Christian watchdog sort gets upset about that. Oh, no, uh, that can't be. It must be different. It that that's illegitimate. It's it's a counterfeit wisdom, <laughs> as if no human can figure out anything right about this world unless he is a professing Christian. 
Uh, which, of course, is a funny position because I know a lot of progressive or profess, professing Christians who have not figured out everything about this world uh, or who have figured out some things flat wrong, uh, as I certainly have myself. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think there are other ways to explain how wise men throughout the world have figured this thing out. Uh, other than, no, they must have stolen it or it must be somehow a twisted version that's designed by Satan to deceive the world. No, I'm not so sure that's true. Even Joseph Stalin really loved his daughter. This butcher to the world, well, he had that on right. He really loved his daughter and enjoyed spending time with her listening to great music on the Victrola. And I know that from my uh, voice teacher who was a real blessing to me because she actually met the daughter and was told this story in person. So anyway, where are we? I guess I am in danger of rambling on too far, and I will get on here with episode 44, The Golden Rule and Who is Responsible for Filling Up the Emotional Void You Naturally Have Inside. A professional therapist told me once that most everybody's got an emotional void inside, along with some level of drive to fill it up. And I suppose this is probably true. At least it seems consistent with my observations in this world. And people fill it, or try to fill it, with different things. Some effective, some ineffective, and some that may temporarily seem effective, but that wear off in time. Here's one pitfall, though, that's worth mentioning. It's based on this question. Whose responsibility is it to fill up the emotional void that I have inside? The basic choices, of course, are these. Number one, it's your own responsibility. Number two, it's somebody else's responsibility. And number three, it's nobody's responsibility. Life just sucks, so get used to being unfulfilled because it's impossible to fill up the void. Now, people who believe in number one, and that is, it's your own responsibility to fill up the void, those people will generally be active in experimenting, learning what works well and what doesn't, and altering their life patterns accordingly as they grow. And people who believe in number three, that is, it's nobody's responsibility, life sucks, get used to it. Um, people who believe in number three have generally just given up hope and finding a way to fulfillment. But what about the people who believe number two? What about the people who think it's somebody else's responsibility to fill their emotional void? They will often be dissatisfied or even angry with those closest to them if they sense that their emotional void is not being filled because they think it is the job of those people to fill them up. They can even lash out, attacking the very people who are closest to them because they are unfulfilled and don't know what to do about it. And this, of course, is sadly ironic, yet it is a very real scenario that breaks a lot of hearts in this messy world, and it can make the lives of their loved ones a living hell, as they say. Now, I'm going to cut to the chase about number three. That's the forget about it, it's impossible option, to be fulfilled, that is. And we're going to strike that one off the list of our discussion today, because I definitely know some people who are emotionally fulfilled in this world, and so that disproves number three. That disproves that that is it is that disproves that it is impossible. That's not to say that their emotional lives are always perfect and that they're happy every minute and never sad or concerned or depressed or anything. But they have generally, or they are generally either happy or can at least see the light of, at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And we should probably talk sometime about those who've given up, but for this episode, I want to table that and get back to options number one and two. So which idea is the better one? Uh, that filling your emotional void is, number one, your own responsibility, or number two, somebody else's responsibility. Now, is this me saying that number one is definitely the right answer and that number two should be ruled out completely? Well, I'm not sure I'm ready to declare that. I'll tell you why in a minute. But I'll say that in my opinion, number one is probably mostly the right answer. Now let me clarify. 
we're talking about emotions here, but please understand that I'm the same guy who, when it comes to uh, cognition, that is to thinking, uh, I'm the same guy who has declared this uh, following self-correction ethic, and, and here it is. Self-correction is the rightful duty of all humans. And that's the self-correction ethic of my reality-based thinking philosophy, which I got, by the way, from the Bible and from cognitive science and from seeing where they agree. So uh, for those of you who may uh, hate that this episode starts out talking about what a, a counselor told me once, um, these are things that I find can be observed from either point of view and have consistent interpretations. So going on, just like I believe we're responsible for the quality of how we think, I believe we're also ultimately responsible for how we feel. And that's certainly a hard idea to sell in this culture that's fond of saying, I can't help how I feel. While we may not have much immediate control over how something makes us feel in the moment, we are the ones who set the stage with our habitual thinking patterns for what our emotional disposition is like. So, for example, if I never work on patience in my thinking, I may explode when someone else interrupts me with an untimely question. And is this their fault? Well, perhaps the interruption is their fault, but whose fault is it that I never work on patience in my own character? So here we are, each with our own emotional life, our own emotional habit world, our own emotional profile or disposition, and we must manage it one way or another. So if we try something to fill up our emotional void and it doesn't work, shouldn't it naturally fall to us to figure that out and to try something else? Why should it be someone else's fault that we are trying things that don't work for us? What people try to fill up their emotional void uh, this is an incomplete sentence. <laughs> what people try to fill up their emotional void with differs somewhat, yet any of the, these sorts of things seem fairly common among humans. And in a particular order, here's a list. There's probably 20 or 30 things here. Uh, throwing themselves into their work, earning lots of money, romance, marriage, sex, the thrill of the hunt in promiscuity, uh, family, friendships, recreational drugs and alcohol, serving others, sports, crafts, other hobbies, hatred of others, bigotry, violence, joining groups, organizations, cliques, etc., reading, learning, movies, philosophy and thinking, crime and similar thrill-seeking endeavors, study, writing, teaching and coaching, etc., uh, and let me say that this list is surely not exhaustive. I had hoped only to put together a good enough sampler for you to bring to mind the sort of activity that I'm talking about in general. Now, some of these items on the list I typed in boldface, and you can see the list, by the way, if you go to the episode page at RethinkingTheBible.com, and this is episode number 44. Uh, so uh, you can see the list here. But anyway, some of these I put in boldface because they tend to involve relating to other humans. And that's where this particular sort of harm I have in mind comes into play. If a guy tries movies to fill up his emotional void and it doesn't work, he can get mad or sad about the failure of the movies and yet not be hurting anybody. But suppose he gets a girlfriend and he realizes in time that she can't fill his emotional void. And nobody can, by the way, not completely. But suppose he realizes this. How he handles that realization could be very harmful to his girlfriend. If he takes it out on her, and if his emotional fulfillment is primarily her responsibility in his mind, then he's got her in quite an unfair predicament because I don't think any human has the power to provide a rich and permanent fulfillment for someone else's emotional void. And the girlfriend may have fallen unwittingly into a trap she did not realize was there. He liked her, among other reasons, perhaps because she provided something new and intriguing, 
and seemed at first like it might finally fill up his emotional void for good. But now, as long as he considers his emotional fulfillment to be her responsibility, if she doesn't want to risk a breakup, she'll have no other choice but to push herself more and more to try to fill up his emotions. She'll wear herself out, and on top of that, he may well take it out on her in some fashion, whether subtly or by some flagrant attacks. If I'm right about what's at the core of this classic unfortunate scenario, it's how the man answers the question I posted above. Whose responsibility is it to fill up the emotional void that I have inside? If he truly thinks it's his own responsibility, then he won't have to get mad at other humans when he realizes that he has emotional needs or deficits or wishes beyond the ones they seem to be able to meet. And even if they do disappoint him, he can realize that it's a simple disappointment of life and that it's not a personal attack or an insult aimed at him. He'll see that it's not something to launch counterattacks over. He can be sad without it having to be somebody else's fault in his mind. And though I've used romance as an example here, please don't think that this is only about romance, because it's simply not. To give another example, a few years back, I founded a nonprofit school to help facilitate homeschoolers with some subjects that I'm pretty good at teaching. As it turns out, there was not enough interest in my small market area to make the school thrive. So after the fourth year, we shut it down. But along the way, I saw that while I truly had some authentic altruistic motives and enjoyed the emotional high that it gave me sometimes, I was also frequently disappointed by the poor behavior of some of the students and parents. And it became quite an emotional burden, despite there being several high-character people involved in the program too. But along the way, in all the ups and downs, I'm pretty sure that I discovered at least some occasions in which I was pinning responsibility for my emotional well-being on the participants of the program. I wasn't completely off in that ditch of thinking, but I did have at least one foot in the ditch from time to time, I could see. And let me break the script here. I was uh, thinking things like, oh, why can't these people just, you know, blank? Well, why can't, they, why can't this person see, why do they have to be so difficult? Well, they weren't all difficult, but there were times at my worst when I began to see the whole program as this insurmountable, impossible challenge. And it most certainly was not that. So I was getting off base uh, in reality with my thinking about things. And it was largely emotional because I myself was generally finding it disappointing. And uh, it needed uh, things to thrive that it did not have, uh, including... Uh, more participants and participants with a, a better way of group thinking, more serving, more involvement rather than just the consumer sort, more actual partners, participants, that sort of thing. Uh, but it was all, uh, what I'm talking about here was not why the school ultimately failed, but about how my emotional response to it could fail and get unrealistic uh, at times where the whole thing's getting painted with an emotional brush that does not really fit all the facts. So that's what I'm getting at. So going on with my script. So there's a difference between reasoning that it's my responsibility and being fully persuaded in my beliefs and emotions that is indeed, or that it is indeed my responsibility and mine only. And it makes me wonder whether I'll ever get all the vestiges of that trained out of myself in this lifetime. Is no one else responsible for my emotions? I said above that I wasn't ready to declare that self-responsibility for emotions is 100% the right and only way to go. And here's why the hesitation. Other people can be immensely helpful in this life. They can teach you things, correct you, where you're wrong, inspire you where you're lacking in inspiration. They can challenge you. They can set a great example for you in ways your life can still use some building up. And this often gives you an external boost, something you couldn't or wouldn't have done for yourself. They can build you up cognitively 
uh, or emotionally, or even help you with some chore or some financial help. And if they really love you and are willing to take the risk of laying it on the line, they can grab you by the lapels and talk some good sense into you when you're being blockheaded. And I want to talk about this some more later in the episode when we get into talking about the golden rule. Because depending on what type of person you are, this can be a total blessing or it can seem like an unwarranted personal attack. So we'll get to that. But let me finish talking about how we need help sometimes. Sometimes we get emotionally stuck. We reach a plateau or get in a rut or we even get into a funk or depression. And depression is just uh, you know shutting down. Uh, I don't know how to make things work in life. I just give up. Uh, at least for now. I'm going to shut down, not go to work, not return phone calls, you know, just sleep all day, watch the TV all day, you know, something like this, but non-productive, shutting down. Uh, anyway, and sometimes we can pull ourselves out of that, but sometimes the help of other people can pull us out or help us to get out, even if they weren't trying to help us with our funk. Just the good faith interaction can be emotionally inter- uh, uplifting. If they have really good people skills, they can draw us out and get us talking about what we're feeling, what we're frustrated about or scared of or mad about, or about obstacles we just can't seem to get over by ourselves. And this kind of help from mature people can be life-changing for us. It can definitely have a huge impact on our emotional lives, both short-term and long. It can definitely help fill up our emotional void somewhat. Uh, And even if it doesn't do it completely, we can realize that we ought to be, uh, we ought to get more of that. And we look for ways to keep on having genuine interactions with genuine and authentic people who can help us like that. And so the question is whether other people are responsible for being kind and helpful to us. And that answer uh, depends on whom we're asking. If you ask the world in general, you may hear that no one owes you anything. But if you ask the wisdom of the ages, you'll hear teachings like the golden rule come up often. And here it is again, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Think about it. The idea here is that people are supposed to treat other people the way they want to be treated themselves. And this is really interesting because we are not perfect people and we may in fact want people to treat us in ways that are odd or off in some way. But even so, the idea seems to be that whatever we think is good treatment, we ought to extend to others in good faith. And we're going to talk in a few minutes about what happens when we're thinking wrongly about what is good treatment and what is not. But for now, just think about it. If everyone were doing this, the world would be so different as to be unrecognizable to us, I imagine. Indeed, if even 10% were doing it, I'm not sure we can imagine the difference that would make in this beautiful-slash-ugly world. Yes, there would be some hiccups, and there'd be some disagreements about what good treatment of self and others should look like, but there would definitely be a lot more goodwill on this planet than there is right now. And we certainly could stop at this point and pout that more people are not golden ruling us with all kinds of kind and helpful behaviors. And we might have a point. But whether other people are golden ruling us has nothing to do with whether we ourselves are golden ruling them. And this, by the way, is where the quicksand of politics normally traps people. That is, the Demublicans fuss about what all the Republicans are doing wrong, And the Republicans fuss about what all the Demublicans have got wrong, but neither side works to clean its own house, to perfect its own behavior, to see that it's not cheating or being neglectful or causing undue harm in its duties. It's such a trap, and it's so against the golden rule, as if by excuse. Well, we could do what's right, but they're doing worse, and they need to cut it out first. And, indeed, what we may be doing wrong, that we would not want anyone else to do to us, well, that's trivial compared to what they're doing wrong to us. It's a dodge of our own responsibility to do right. 
with an excuse that we're okay since they're not fixing themselves first. And it's not too far from this idea that, quote, I'd be better if only other people would behave differently. End quote. And this can get pretty subtle. But there's a nasty trick rolled up into this kind of thinking. It's a dodge of responsibility. It is blame-shifting. And I hope you see how it's at least a little bit related to putting somebody else in charge of filling up our emotional voids instead of learning to do it ourselves. If you can sweep your own front porch, why not do it? And even if you want to fuss about how messy the neighbor's porch is, or what a pig he is not to sweep it, couldn't you at least be sweeping your own porch while you're fussing about his? Does his porch is worse really make your own messy porch okay? Or to my number three possibility at the beginning of this discussion, to the uber-negative person who says it's all a waste of time and that nothing can ever get better, isn't it funny how people like that can get dirt on their porches and how they can use a broom, because of basic physics, of course, and how they would indeed enjoy it if their own porch were swept. And isn't it funny how they have to work pretty hard to discount these facts in order to maintain their uber-negative view that all good efforts are a waste of time? What the Golden Rule can do for us. So here's what I really wanted to talk about in this episode. It's a bonus that I see hard at work in my kindest friends. When they love and serve others in various ways, they find it is an emotional blessing to themselves. It gives them a boost, an emotional boost. And I've even seen this, rarely, in people who live with substantial difficulties in life, as with strained relationships or financial hardship or extremely unruling and wayward children. Even when life is hard, some people almost always seem to have something to give and some interest in giving it. And even if they are mourning about their troubles, they're still emotionally free to rejoice with you about your blessings. And of course, this brings to mind that scripture, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, let me be clear that what I'm talking about seems to be fairly rare. Many may think a little bit about serving others when they themselves are feeling down, but some people actually thrive on it. They dig in to serve, and they find that this rescues them from getting completely bogged down in their own pain. And so they have two needs. Yes, they need to talk it out and process it completely, and often they don't get this done very well, so they don't recover as quickly as they could. But secondly, they have learned that they can generally always obey the golden rule, even when they are extremely sad or tired or depressed or otherwise in doubt or troubled. And they will see this as a need, too. In fact, they tend to see it as the priority need, even over the need of processing and talking it out. And this can be a tricky balancing act, and I don't suppose I know anybody who gets it right all the time. But there's a fundamental disposition of priorities in play here. Is my own mental health the priority, or is doing unto others as I would have them do unto me the priority? It's like a toggle switch. It's either set to A or to B, either to self or to others, and in some people it stays set pretty well, while others may be constantly flipping it back and forth. That is, from time to time, as situations seem to call for this setting or that setting. And I think that God knows that this is a struggle for us. He also knows that those who wait on tables, who serve others, are in need of eating. They themselves need food, just like the ones they're serving. It is a particular puzzle of our existence here in this life. And the very best at being kind and loving struggle with getting this right day to day, while those who pri whose priority is always self are actually depriving themselves of something they need very deeply. That is, they need that special kind of edification that you can only get 
from serving others. If they've got themselves in me-only mode, or something closer to that end of the spectrum, they are in a terrible trap that many never seem to escape. And what's worse is that this kind of life not only fails to serve others as God intended for us to do, but it becomes very harmful to others. It's not only unproductive in God's eyes, but it is counterproductive and even destructive. And here's something ironic. The person who has prioritized love and kindness has got to deal with the harmful behaviors of the selfish people who make themselves the priority of their own lives. I hope you see what an important choice this is, this prioritization choice. The reset button. Like everybody else, the people whose priority is love and kindness toward others need to have a meltdown of some sort and to hit the reset button from time to time. And this is quite okay. Sometimes they just have to stop and cry. Sometimes they have to stop and pour their hearts out to a friend. Sometimes they pour their hearts out to God about it. And I suspect that most of us need to do this more often than we do. But if nothing else, you know it's time to do it when you're overwhelmed and at the end of your rope. But if you look at their overall lives, you'll definitely see where serving others is pretty much their top default habit, whether or not they're in physical or emotional pain or discomfort themselves. To me, this is an amazing thing, and I am certainly not there myself. I'm not on that extreme end of devotion to serving others as some are. Instead, I'm in the middle somewhere and really want to get farther over toward that extreme. But even so, even though I don't understand it all myself, I think I see a certain genius that would help anybody who's down to pick themselves up at least a little bit and to make somebody else's life a little bit better in the process. It seems like the very design. So this all makes me wonder if this world were designed such that the more we give unselfishly, simply because it is the right thing to do, the more we are personally enriched emotionally. And I say because it's the right thing to do, what I mean is that helping people who need help is the right thing to do. It is the morally right thing. It is the right way to think. I'm not talking about this pragmatic, oh, well, it's the right thing to serve people, so I will serve people and, you know, whatever, uh, <laughs> because it's good for me. And I do think I talk about that in a minute. But I just wanted to make that clear. So going on, for many, this may seem an oversimplified approach. That is, look, just serve people because people need to be served. Uh, or for some, it may seem like a mere feel-good psychobabble. But let's look at the source here. The golden rule appears in various forms throughout the wisdom of the ages. And among the 50-plus sages on record as having taught it, Jesus himself acknowledged it. So maybe there's some wisdom to it after all, eh? So what if we are responsible for loving others? What if Jesus actually expects that of us? And what if loving others tends to fill up our own emotional void somewhat? Then maybe it's reasonable that any time we're feeling empty, to start trying to fill the void by loving others more, as we'd like to be loved ourselves. Perhaps this was the very plan for how to make happy humans on this earth. And we could do this selfishly, of course, as I was just mentioning a minute ago. And surely some people do. That is, when they try to do the right thing, it's not because it's the right thing or because it will really help somebody who needs help, but because it will make them feel better. That is, even though it seems loving, it's really for self-centered reasons that they do it. And some, of course, uh, do such things to be seen doing it because they like the idea of having the reputation of being loved. Now, I want to stop right here and, and talk about somebody who does the right thing because they know it'll make them feel better. Well, <laughs> this is tough. 
uh, if there's an emotional reward from from actually following Jesus' teaching here, uh, well, maybe that's intentional. Maybe that's quite okay. And so I think there's a danger in saying, well, I'm only doing this to make myself feel better. Mm, you can tell whether you have a motive for the other person's good or not. And once you start doing things that actually hurt people in order to make yourselves feel better, okay, that's when you're twisted. That's when something's wrong in there. So I just wanted to stop and be sure this is not interpreted as, oh, I know it would make me feel better to serve people because I was really sad about that argument I just had. And so I served people, but, oh, gee, that was selfish. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you go ahead and serve people, but you really care about the people when you do it and be sure that you're actually meeting their needs and not just your own need of some sort. So I hope that makes sense. Anyway. Uh, so people can do these things for self-centered reasons. And some, of course, do such things to be seen doing it because they like the, the idea of having a reputation of being loving. And some do it to manipulate others in various ways. And what a mess that is. But people like these have not really accepted the yoke. And I'm talking about the Jesus reference to uh, wearing a yoke, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, what he wants us to do is actually doable. We can live this way. Yes, it's a yoke. Yes, there's a burden to bear, but it is doable. And of course, this is where a lot of people want to argue. No, that's, it's impossible. No, we can't do that. That's too much to ask. No, it won't work anyway, right? Things like this. Anyway, uh, these people have not really yielded themselves to the duty of godliness but are simply enduring it in hopes of finding some other payoff than the godliness itself. And so they don't think that, uh, pardon me, I'm talking while I'm correcting a typo, but they don't think that being godly, oh, wow, that would be really something if I could be like that. They don't see that value in it. They're like, oh, okay, well, I'm supposed to be godly, so let me do the thing, <laughs> right? Anyway. If they ever get the idea that their desired payoff isn't coming, they'll quit the godly behavior because being godly is not a reward to them. Instead, it was something like having the good reputation or receiving kudos or gratitude or being mentioned in the church newsletter for their good works. But Jesus never really seemed to have a very positive message for people who are inauthentic like that. Indeed, even the angels who announced Jesus' birth to the world said something very intriguing about the blessing that Jesus would be, this newborn baby. And you have to really pay attention to get the point here. So listen to what he said. And I'm about to turn a corner in this study today, in this episode, because I want to talk about, um, you could say, oh, this is a Christmas episode. Well, fine. Christmas is approaching. You can think about this. Of course, uh, there are those who believe that Jesus was born on September 11 in the year 3 BC. And, uh, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe they're not. Um, totally different thing. But in that case, I'm late for Christmas. I apologize if you're in that camp. So anyway, uh, listen to what these angels said. Uh, Luke 2, verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. They were decreeing peace, which is certainly related to, the, to a certain emotional state of well-being to some people. But if you look really closely, you'll see that the promise may not have been to everybody, because this peace was for, quote, those on whom his favor rests. End quote. And we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? And to be fair, it could possibly mean any of several different things. It could be interpreted in various ways. And we should probably look at this in depth, uh, maybe even for a Christmas episode. But I think, and I have some reasons for this, I think that this blessing of Jesus was only for certain people that God was pleased with and not for every single human on the earth because God was most certainly not pleased with everybody. And this fact is very obvious if you study it out. In fact, in the angel's prophecy to Mary, 
Later in Luke 2, it says this, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, quote, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And then it goes on from there, but that's the part I wanted to talk about. So while Jesus may have been fantastic news for some, he was not good news for everybody. In fact, you can look at John the Baptist's message and find this out, that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And uh, the first one was really good, and the second one was really ungood. And he was talking about two different groups of people. So, uh, and again, there's something here with this falling and rising. So um, anyway, he would cause some to rise, and I assume that this is ultimately about rising up to heaven, that is, in the afterlife, to eternal life. But he would also cause some to fall, and I assume this is ultimately about being judged into the lake of fire after life. Jesus, like God, is both kind and stern, And this is such a stumbling block to so many of us who don't think that those two characteristics can go together. So back to Luke 2.14. There's this idea of the blessing of Jesus coming only to those on whom God's favor rests. That was the NIV we were reading before. So let's look at how the ESV translates it. Uh, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Remember, the other said, on whom his favor rests. Here we got the idea with whom he is pleased. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but I understand that this passage is a tricky one to translate well. But I want you to see that even a lot of the more traditional versions have a qualifier regarding what kind of people were to receive this peace. Here's the Dewey Rames version, uh, 1899, which comes to English from the Greek by way of the Latin translation. But even it picks up on the translation, on the, the qualification about who was supposed to receive this peace. So here's Luke 2.14 in the Dewey Rames Version. Uh, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. Who was to get the peace? Well, it was to people of good will. So even this translation, whether it's exactly right or not, it still pegs something on the quality of the people, whether that's their own internal quality or some way God's looking at the people. Uh, So still there's some qualifier here. It doesn't seem to be for everybody. And so apparently the promise of peace was not for those who did not have this goodwill or on whom God's favor did not rest, as some of the other versions have it. And so we have to ask ourselves whether God's favor would rest on somebody who was not following Jesus' golden rule, who was not loving his neighbor as himself, who was not regulating his treatment of others such that he himself would approve of that behavior if he were on the receiving end of it himself. And I think the answer is no. I think that if we were interested in doing the homework, we could build quite an argument from Scripture that Jesus is not pleased with people who lack that love and respect for others and for God, who created those others. And I think that we ourselves get in a really dangerous bind when we get self-focused and selfish like that. For some, it's about anger. For others, it may be about disappointment. And for some, it's probably about fear, and particularly the fear of getting hurt or disappointed or of being rejected by others. And in some, it may be because they were conditioned in the past by fear of neglect or abuse that may, they may be just running in autopilot. But here comes Jesus with this very fundamental teaching about how we should live, and it offers a way out of that selfish rut. And I think it comes down to whether we're really going to trust him or not to whether we're going to take it to heart and obey him, to embrace this instruction from him, to lay it on the line and put it into practice, to let it rip, or whether we're going to keep our putting ourselves above everybody else and counting our own needs as more important than theirs, whether in general 
or even in the moment-to-moment decisions of the day. My dad's mom used to scold him about his deep insecurities as a kid. She would say, you wouldn't be so scared if you weren't so mean. And I wonder if she might not have got some of this thing figured out. That is, his insecurities, his fear of being hurt or rejected, were somehow related to his refusal to be kind to people, as he knew he should have been doing. And there's a certain vulnerability here that is scary, to be sure. But I do wonder if this is not, in part, why so many of us find ourselves having such a hard time filling our own emotional voids. Because we are ultimately unwilling to trust Jesus' teachings and to obey him in the particulars of loving our neighbors as ourselves. So there's something to ponder. And this may well be why some find Christianity unfulfilling, why it doesn't seem to fill them up. And I think it's because they're unwilling to dive in and to embrace the whole program, so to speak. And it comes down to this one very basic fear or hesitance to give themselves to loving others fully. And I see another case in which the golden rule gets bogged down, but I think I'd better save that for another episode. So I hope you found this helpful, with plenty of useful things to ponder. Thanks for joining in.